Psalms chapter number 32, and this sort of goes right along with the message and what God laid on my heart for this afternoon. Let me say again how much I appreciate all those that labored, made today possible, and uh, I tell you, it was it was wonderful, and I appreciate everyone uh, that made uh, this day possible. Psalms chapter number 32, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Psalms chapter 32, we'll begin in verse 1, we'll read to the end of the chapter, it's only 11 verses. The Word of God says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Let's pray together. Father, I love you so much. I'm so thankful that you love me. I don't deserve it, Lord. I've never deserved it. I didn't deserve it when you first showed your love to me in in commending your love toward us in that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Lord, there's never been a moment or a day when I've loved you the way that you deserve or that I have been deserving of your love. But I want to thank you publicly for loving me, for being patient with me. Lord, thank you for performing that greatest of all miracles when you saved my soul, birthed me into the family of God, transformed my life. Lord, you're real, and I thank you that you're real. I pray, Lord, that this afternoon, as we focus our attention upon your word, that you would have, Lord, the same amount, yea, even more liberty to work in our hearts than you even did this morning. This is not just a formality. Lord, this is not just parting words, but we have come to this moment with our attention set upon you and our hearts desiring to hear from you. So help us to make the most use of this time. And I pray that you'd be glorified through our obedience and through our receptiveness to the word of God. We'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. Lord, I love you and I thank you for loving us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to consider Psalms chapter 32 with me for a few moments. And I want you to notice in the beginning how this psalm starts. David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Paul will echo these same words in Romans chapter 4 when he speaks of faith having always been the basis and criteria of a man knowing God and having righteousness imputed unto him. The word impute means for something to be put to your account or accredited unto you. One of the things the Bible is abundantly clear about is that a man has never been saved by works. It's always been by his mercy and not by works of righteousness which we have done. And we use terminology like saved. That's probably a a, a more appropriately New Testament term. But understand in the Old Testament, though we might not have used the, the term saved, though they may have not had a concept of the new birth, it doesn't change the fact that in the Old Testament, folks that were willing to come to God, take Him at His Word, trust in His mercy, believe on His Word, could be what we would call saved. Or as the text tells us, they could have uh, righteousness imputed unto them and their transgressions could be forgiven. In fact, it wouldn't be at all inappropriate to say that David is describing in this psalm a saved individual. 
But I want you to notice with me, though these first two verses are the ones we often quote and read and think about, that there's a continuity in this chapter of Scripture. In fact, we could say that there is sort of a a progression in the development of this individual from verse number 1 all the way down to verse number 11. David is in many ways giving his own testimony as a saved individual. And he describes what that journey of walking with God has been. Now, let me say uh, very clearly, uh, when a person is saved, that is an instantaneous event. They are immediately saved and eternally saved. So I don't want you to think I mean some progressive form of salvation. But let me say this, inasmuch as we talk about salvation, not just as a person being forgiven of their sin, but as God uh, redeeming their life, in that sense, your salvation better progress. Amen? It better, it better get deeper. It better get better. It better get closer. Because God has designed you not just to believe on Him, get a ticket to heaven, and then see Him one day in glory, but He has designed you to walk with Him day by day, ever growing closer to Him in this journey of life. In fact, it'd be appropriate, I think, and I want to title the message this afternoon, The Journey of the Man That Is Forgiven. You could call it the journey or the development of the Christian life or a myriad of other titles communicating this idea that David is describing a person that gets saved and then how they grow in their walk with the Lord. And I want you to notice five steps or five principles that we find in this psalm. Then we'll be done for the day. Amen. You can go home and regret all that barbecue that you ate. Amen. Notice number one with me this afternoon, the saved man's entrance. They say, what do you mean by that, preacher? How did he get in? How did he get born again? How did he get saved? How did he come to know God? I think that's a pretty important question. If we understand that there is a God, and I think that any rational person, you understand, I didn't say any religious person, I said any rational person should be able to look around and tell there's a God that created all of this. I could give example after example, but I'll just give a simple one. Uh, If you were to walk into the middle of a room containing nothing in it, no person, no material, no items, and in the middle of that room you saw a couch sitting there, you would immediately make some assumptions. You would assume somebody's been here. Somebody knows about this place. That somebody has means and has resources. Whoever that person is has been here and has brought this item and has placed it in this place. Now, why would you make that assumption? Because when you look at that couch, you see immediately and instinctively in it an element of design. It's not just a pile of rocks. It's not just a pile of dirt. It's something that has been crafted. It has a function. It has a purpose. It has certain uh, contours and lines to it and certain structural integrity. And so seeing that design causes you to automatically assume and automatically infer that there is some intelligence behind that design. It didn't just come into being. It didn't go from being an amoeba to being a sofa. Someone must have built it and someone must have put it there. Now, what does that say about us? And what does it say about the blindness of the human heart that looking around at this entire vast world That, hey, listen, it may be broken, but it does function. Amen? If you don't think something can be broken and function, you ain't drove some of the cars I drove. Amen? It functions. There is rhyme. There is reason. There is a song. There is a, there is an intelligence to the created world around us. Any, I said a rational person would automatically assume someone put this here. It didn't just come into being. It did not just all of the sudden develop or evolve from some lower. And I could, man, I could talk. I don't have time, but I could talk at length about this. You understand the irrationality of believing that a big bang spit out this world? Uh, one preacher used the illustration, or actually a scientist, I believe it was. He said if you were to take a wristwatch and completely disassemble it and throw it in a bag and shake it together and dump it out, how many times would you have to do that before a fully functioning wristwatch would come out? By the same respect, the idea that randomness put us here is not rooted in science, it's rooted in paganism. 
it's it's a fantasy it's it's a fallacy it's it's the uh, it's the ravings of a mind that's drunk on the rejection of god it's not a rational worldview and so just speaking rationally if we say well there is a god and i think we could all rationally say there is a god then the next important question becomes how does he feel about me what does he think about me what is my relationship with him like is there one or is there not one For most people, most of the, I don't know, seven and a half billion people walking in this earth, most of them have no relationship with God. They don't talk to God. They don't hear from God. I understand I don't hear from God audibly, but I can read His Word and I can tell He knows what's up in my life. I don't know about you. I can can read His Word until He's been reading my mail. And I hear from Him and he, He deals in my life. And so the question then becomes, how, how, do we, how do we know that God? How can we be right with that God? How can we please that God? If He's the Creator, where is creation? Would it not be rational to think our purpose must be to please that Creator that has created us? And so David begins by speaking to the very essence of a man's relationship with God. How does a man get saved? How does a man get right with God, what is his entrance? Notice two things he speaks of. Number one, he speaks of the blessing of forgiveness. He says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Right out of the gate, David fires a shot over the bow and reminds us that our sin is not just a mistake, but it is a trespass against a holy God. We have offended God. We have transgressed. He has set boundaries and we have stepped over them and dared Him to do anything about it. He says whose sin is covered. It tells me this, sin can't be ignored. It has to be dealt with. I understand the distinction in the New Testament about the fact that our sins and iniquities, God doesn't remember. I could take you the passages that talk about Him, throw them in the bottom of the sea, putting them behind His back, putting them in a bag and hiding them, all those different things. But I just want you to simply notice David points to the fact that God dealt with our sin because sin must be dealt with. You can't just ignore your sin and think that's enough. It must be dealt with. Then he says this, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Tells me this, that my relationship with God bears upon my standing with Him. I can't just assume that I must be okay with God. I've got to find some way to find out that I've been made okay with God. Now, I'm glad I don't just have an Old Testament. It's funny to me. There's people in the world, all they want is an Old Testament. I'm glad for the Old Testament. Praise God for it. But I'm glad there's a New Testament too. Because I learn how I can be made right with God. I could give you example after example, verse after verse. But I think old Romans chapter 10 will be enough. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're made right with God based upon, predicated on what He did for us on Calvary when He died in our place, in our stead. And the first thing David speaks of is the blessing of forgiveness. If you've not been forgiven of your sins by a thrice holy God, you don't have a relationship with Him. You have no entrance. You have no reason to believe that you're okay with God. It's funny. We, we, people just assume, I must be okay with God. Why? Well, uh, you know, I guess we think because God's okay with us, we must be okay with Him and vice versa. But the truth is, something must occur in our life if we're to be made right with God. We must have our sins forgiven. We learn in the New Testament how this occurs by believing on Jesus Christ. But I just simply point out, if you've not had your sins forgiven, you don't have a relationship with God. He speaks of the blessing of forgiveness, and then he speaks of the blessing of fellowship. He says this, in whose spirit there is no guile. Guile is an interesting word. It means deception. And what he's saying is this, God saved me, but then after he saved me, he changed me and transformed me into a creature that could walk in fellowship with him. Another good word for guile is hypocrisy. And here's what David says, after God saved me, he he didn't just make me saved, he made me sincere. He didn't just make me holy, he made me honest. He changed me, he didn't just give me salvation, he gave me integrity, and he transformed my life such that I might walk with him and have fellowship with him. Man, it's a good thing to have fellowship with God. I don't know why, and I know I'm guilty of it, just like everybody is, I suppose, but I don't know why a person would want to live like a Christian, live the Christian life without walking with God. I, I mean, you, you understand that to do so is to buffet your flesh without enjoying the fellowship. And can I say, it ain't no wonder so many Christians are miserable. Hey, listen, they're doing the hard part of living like a Christian, and they're just giving up the easy part. <laughs> the fact is, the fellowship we enjoy with God, that is the strength, that is the joy, that is the activeness and energy that fuels our walk with Him. What a tragedy it would be to go through life living like a Christian and not even spending time with Christ. 
I see the entrance of this forgiven man here. How did it happen? Well, God forgave him. How did God forgive him? Well, because he believed on him. Romans chapter number 4 deals at length with both Abraham and with David, that it was their faith in God that had purchased to them uh, salvation and forgiveness that had, that had permitted and allowed and facilitated was the catalyst for God's grace and God's mercy in their life. He speaks of his entrance. But then notice with me verse 3. David says this, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand, speaking of God's hand, was heavy upon me. My moisture, he says, is turned into the drought of summer. He says I was all dried up spiritually. Why did that happen? Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Won't you notice that he speaks not only of the, of the forgiven man's entrance, but then he speaks of his repentance. Now, David almost, in fact, it's jarring when we read it because verses 1 and 2 are so pleasant, they are so joyful, they are so rejoicing. And then when we get to verse 3, it's like we're just all of a sudden hit right in the gut with this angst-ridden description of the torment and of the sorrow and of the sadness that David is feeling in his life. Now, why is that? Well, because though God had forgiven his sin, sin still reared its head in David's life. It's funny that the the perspective that a person, they get saved, they'll never sin again. I don't know how you believe that and own a Bible. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm being truthful. I don't know how you can believe that and own a Bible. You go all through the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, and here's what you'll find. You'll find that it is a thesis. It is a song. It is a poem. It is a dedication to both the failure of man and the faithfulness of God. And over and over again, what do you find? You find saved people that mess up. I, if you don't think a saved person can mess up, all that means is you ain't willing to admit where you've messed up. Man, we all make mistakes. And if your perspective is, well, I'm saved now, I'll never sin. Ha, listen, I applaud you. I really do. I'm rooting for you, but I don't hold out any hope whatsoever. Fact is, saved people sin. I've known some of them that's better at it than lost people. (laughs) Save people's sin, of course they do. So here then becomes the question, if I'm going to have a relationship with God with any length, then I'm going to have to figure out how sin needs to be dealt with in my life personally. There's a lot of people that never mature as Christians because they never learn how to deal with sin in their life. They get saved very often. They're led to the Lord as a a child, as a young person. They get saved and then they enter into some period of sin in their life. And because they've never been taught what you do and how to deal with sin, their walk with God sours. It dries up like David describes here. And they just quit on God. And they're still saved. We're going to be in heaven with them. We're going to have to sit next to them. Somebody say amen to that. But they're miserable individuals because they never learned how to deal with sin. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. Man, he's a messed up dude. You go through the Bible, I mean, he did things that you and I wouldn't even think of doing. We're capable of it, but we wouldn't admit in polite company that we're capable of it. And yet he's a man after God's own heart. Why is that? Because David learned how to deal with sin. And though he committed sin, he learned how wretched and rotten sin is. Notice what happens here. Number one, I see the conviction he has over his sin. That's what he's describing in verse 3. When I kept silence. What does he mean when he kept silence? When he wouldn't talk to God about his sin. Can I tell you something? You ought to talk to God about your sin. You say, well, preacher, I just, I don't know. I wouldn't know what to say. You don't have to know what to say. Nothing you say is going to impress him anyway. But you need to talk to God about your sin. I've never seen anyone who didn't get their sin taken care of that talked to God about that sin. If you'll come to the Lord, you say, Preacher, I don't even know what to say about it. Come, bow your head and heart before Him and say, God, I sinned. Lord, I sinned. I did this. And I'll tell you what I try to do, and I I ain't always got the courage to do it, if I'm being honest, but I try to make it a practice. When I confess my sin to God, I try to always say it in as, as rotten a terms as I can think to say it in. If I lied, I didn't bend the truth, man. I lied. I didn't bend it. I broke it, set it on fire, and rolled it down a hill. 
Listen, if I stole, I didn't borrow something and forget to give it back, I stole it. Whatever it is, I try to call it by as wicked a way as I can call it. You say, why, preacher? Because sin don't give us no quarter. So we shouldn't give sin any quarter in our life. And so what he's describing here is when he refused to talk to God about his sin, what happened to him? He said this, my bones waxed old through roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. One of the blessed things about uh, getting older in life, I'm not old, I didn't say I'm old, I just said getting older, and I am verifiably getting older every day and every moment. I'm older than when you showed up this morning. Um, is that you don't sleep well anymore. And they never told me this when I had kids, that that the day that we had my oldest son would be the last good night of sleep I'd ever have in my entire life. They don't tell you that in the baby books. They should, amen. If we had an honest world, they'd admit it. But you know, when when you can't sleep well, when you're tossing, when you're turning, you ever woke up sore from a bad night's sleep? That's when you know you have reached full peak adulthood. I woke up, man, I'm sore. What would you do? I just tried to sleep. That's all I tried to do. David is describing his bones waxing old through roaring all the day long. He's describing the, the physical toll that sin takes. And sin takes a physical toll. Sin takes a physical toll. You want to be old before your time? Live in sin. It'll make you old before your time. It takes a physical toll. Why is that happening? Well, he says, day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. Here's what he's describing. He's describing his conviction over his sin. You know, one of the things that happened when you got saved is all of a sudden you can't take a neutral attitude about sin anymore. Sin will bother you. It will trouble you. It will disturb you. You may try to ignore it. You may try to laugh through it. You may try to pretend that it's not the case. But when you were lost, you could engage in sin. And it isn't even necessarily that you rejoiced in it. You just didn't even notice it. I think sometimes as saved people, we forget that. Lost people sin and they don't even notice it. They don't even notice that they've sinned. It doesn't even register to them. I mean, that's why we live in the society we do where somebody will stand and will lie to you just like they're telling you the truth. And you think, how could they do that? They probably didn't even notice that they lied. It's just a way of life. They breathe out lying and deception and dishonesty. But when you got saved, all of a sudden, hey, that new man awoke within you. Hey, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God took up residence in you. And all of a sudden, now your mind has been awakened and illuminated to the truth of God's Word. And now sin bothers you. Sin should bother you. Your sin should bother you more than other people's sin. But all sin should bother you. I see his conviction over sin, but then I see his confession of sin in verse 5. What did he do about it? Well... In verse 3, he kept silent and things got worse. In verse 3, he ignored his sin. It didn't go away. In verse 3, he pretended as though he hadn't sinned and he didn't get any better. You picking up what I'm throwing down here? If you ignore it, it's not going to get any better. If you pretend, it's not going to get any better. If you lie to God about it, it's not going to make you feel any better. You know why God won't alleviate your conviction until you deal with your sin? Because He's not going to help you be a hypocrite. He's not going to contribute to your hypocrisy. If you won't deal with your sin, He won't alleviate the conviction that you feel. When did things change? Well, here's when. Verse 5. He said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. In other words, and I love my King James Bible. I love it. It says, I acknowledged. It tells me this. And, and he is describing. He says, mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. But I want you to notice that there's a progression here, right? The first thing he had to do was acknowledge his sin. Quit living in denial about it. There's a lot of people walking around living in denial about their sin. They're living in sin. They can read a Bible and tell that they're living in sin. But they think if they don't acknowledge it, it will not be reality. But the truth is, and I know, listen, we live in a world that's conditioned you to believe that reality is just a fungible, elastic concept and that you can just will and decide yourself to be whatever you decide and will yourself to be. But, you know, it's funny. It's still... mm, mm. I'm supposed to, that we had barbecue. This, I ain't even supposed to be preaching to you, and here we are. I will just tell you this. It don't matter. Hey, listen, it don't matter how many people use their preferred pronouns. It ain't going to make their stubble go away. Right. It ain't going to matter how much we all sit around and pretend, right, and clap our hands and believe and everything. That, that Adam's apple ain't going nowhere, amen, or change of chromosomes. And you say, well, preacher, 
Uh, that yeah, that's silly. Those people, I mean, they're they're delusional, and they are. You say, preacher, that that those people are degenerate, and they are. But you understand that when you and I engage in sin, we engage in the same fantasy and the same fallacy of refusing to acknowledge what we know to be reality because we believe in some way that's going to keep it from being true. First thing he does, man, he acknowledges it. Then here's what he said. He said, I quit hiding it. Quit hiding it from God. I quit pretending like it wasn't there and I quit acting and behaving as though it wasn't true and as though it was not real. And that left me with having to do something. So here's what I did, he says. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Know what he learned? He learned if he'd do that. Here's what God did. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. You see, it's only your flesh that thinks your failures are final. God's faithfulness declares that they are not. God's mercy declares that they are not. And if you'll come to Him and confess that sin and acknowledge that sin and and expose that sin to Him and say, Now, Lord, I've messed up, I've sinned, I've done wrong. He'll forgive you of it by His eternal Word, by His immutable character, by His inexhaustible mercy. He will forgive you of them. Here's what he had learned. He had learned about his entrance. He had learned about his repentance, how to deal with sin. But then look at verse 6 with me. He says this, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. He says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. So you see the progression here. He believes on the Lord, has righteousness imputed unto him. Then he must learn how to deal with sin in his life on a daily basis. Once he has learned how to deal with that, he begins to talk about his dependence on the Lord. Not all of your problems are going to be due to your failures. Some of them will be. You are going to make mistakes that God will have to chasten you over. You are going to commit sin that God will have to chasten you over in your life. But not every problem in your life is going to be because you did something wrong. In fact, sometimes God will permit storms into your life that He might develop you and perfect you and that He might curate your faith in such a way as to bring out of it that which brings Him the most glory. And here's what David had learned. He had learned this. Even saved people suffer. Even righteous people suffer. Even upright people suffer. And so we better ready ourselves to know what to do when there's suffering. Notice two things he speaks of. The first is the reliance of faith. I like how he says this. For this. For what? Well, for what he describes at the end of the verse. In the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. This is what the godly will pray for. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. Say, preacher, what David learned? He learned this. When things get rough, just trust him. Just trust him. I know that seems real elementary. I know that seems real simple. But why is it that we struggle with it so much? I do. Man, I don't know about you. I'm so glad to go to church with such spiritual people. And you're so patient. Let me pastor you. I'm glad you don't ever have none of these problems. But your preacher does. Sometimes, man, when things get difficult, I struggle to trust him. But I've learned this. He's a trustworthy God. He's never failed me. There's never been a moment I couldn't trust Him. There's been a lot of moments I wouldn't trust Him. But there's never been a time that I couldn't trust Him. How's that trust? How's that faith manifest? Well, here in this verse, it manifests in the matter of prayer. The godly, in in that time, they pray unto Him. They cry unto Him. They do it presently, immediately. You know, the Bible says He's a present help in in time of trouble. Uh, Part of us, we want him to be a procrastinating help, not a present help, because we want to put off having to come to him. But I like how David says it, when thou mayest be found. Now, that's interesting. Why does he say, when thou mayest be found? Is he suggesting God will withdraw himself? Is he suggesting that God will rescind his promises? That God will contradict his faithfulness? No, there's a real simple reason. Because the fellow in verse 6 is getting ready to drown. And it ain't going to do him a lot of good to pray. After he's drowned. When may he be found? When we may pray. As long as you can pray, he can be found. As long as you've got breath and mind to seek him, he can be found. 
And here's what David had learned. He had learned sometimes the storms will come. Sometimes the waters will begin to rage. Sometimes the flood will begin to advance and begin to raise. And in those times, I've learned that the best thing I can do is call unto Him and ask Him to see to my needs. It's a simple thing, but oh, it's a foundational thing. We better learn to trust in Him. He speaks of the reliance of faith. But then verse 7, I like it. He talks about the refuge He found. He said, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I was talking to somebody in between the services and we were talking about the, the sermon this morning. Somebody had made the comment said, you know, there's times I fight battles. I just want to just hide away from it all. Man, I'm tempted to do that. I, and I, I'm, I, I got a predisposition to that anyway. I mean, I'm that person that would be living out in the woods with, with a 16-inch beard and, 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 and birds matted into my hair and trip wires set up everywhere. I mean, if I wasn't in the pulpit, I'd be on a watch list. And I may actually, well... Before being in a pulpit was enough to get you on a watch list... Had I not been in a pulpit, I'd have been. I mean, I'm that guy. I'm just that person that wanted to get away from it all. But you know, here's what David had learned. When you want to hide, hide in him. When you want to hide, hide in him. That preacher, sometimes I just want to get away from it all. Get in your prayer closet. You'll get away from it all. Preacher, sometimes I just, I feel discouraged and I, and I just want to run, run to him. The psalmist had learned this, that God's a refuge. That he could go to the Lord and the Lord would hide him. Now what does that mean? Hide him from what? Hide him from those floodwaters. Hide him from those battles. Hide him from those troubles. They didn't go away. But you see, if he was hidden in God, when he looked around to look at all of the waves, he wouldn't see the waves. He'd just see the Lord. The waves are still out there. But instead of seeing those, he sees God. You know, when we're going through storms in life, songwriter described how he stepped in between me and the storm. And I no longer see the storm. All that I see is him. You say, preacher, I wish God would take these storms away. Well, he may and he may not. He may not calm the storm. He may calm the saint. And he may draw you closer unto him such that you see not the storm around you, but you see only his presence. He says, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. And I like this, thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Now that's interesting. He's not describing songs of deliverance coming from within. He's talking about songs of deliverance coming from without. What's he describing? He's describing other people singing their songs of deliverance. Here's what I've learned to take refuge in. You may laugh at this, but this is the honest truth. You'll never know how much your testimonies encourage me. There's times it gets dark. There's times I don't understand. There's times that that, that hell sets itself against you and you, you just don't understand what's happening and why it's happening. And one of the things that can get you through is to hear the songs of deliverance that God's people are singing on your left hand and on your right hand in the congregation of those that know the Lord that can talk about how good and gracious He's been in their life. Because there's times that you don't see Him and you can't find Him. But when you hear somebody else saying He just showed up in their life... You're reminded that he's not far away. He found he found that God didn't have to remove his troubles. God could be a refuge in his troubles. He describes his dependence. Look at verse number 8 with me. I like this. Verse 8 says this. I will instruct thee. Now this is the Lord speaking. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. The Lord says, I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse... Or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. He describes, he's moved on, you see. He starts with his entrance, how he got in. Then he describes his repentance, how he, he dealt with sin and learned how to deal with sin. And then he describes his dependence and how he's learned how to deal with storms in his life. But in verse number 8 and 9, he describes his obedience. And how he's learned to be obedient to the Lord. It's really not in David's voice. It's in the Lord's voice. Speaking and describing the obedience that God desires. Notice he describes two things here. First, he describes him as seeking the Lord's heart. He says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. Instruction and teaching is an interesting thing. We sometimes conflate coercion and conditioning 
with instruction and with teaching. One of the things that we're seeing in our society writ large today is re-education on a societal level. It's conditioning that is beaten into our brains through the programming that they give us on television. That's what it is. It's programming. That's what they call it. They'll tell you what they're doing if you'll listen. They call television shows programming. Why? Well, that's what they do. They program you to believe certain things and to hold certain value systems. And one of the things that we've seen is that as as the lie that they're peddling becomes more outlandish, the hand that they're using becomes heavier. Now it's no longer tolerance. We used to hear that all the time, tolerance. That was, when I was growing up, it was all about tolerance. That's what you heard all the time. Now they don't even really talk about tolerance anymore. Now they have their own current year buzzwords. But one of the things that we're seeing very readily is that they really, 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 really want you to see it their way. And if you don't, they'll beat you and imprison you for tolerance, you know, (laughs) for freedom, for democracy. They are fully committed to getting whatever response out of you that they desire. But, you know, teaching and instruction is something that is not done so that it might merely in a mechanical way coerce the behavior of a person, but rather that it might be able to influence the behavior of a person such that they do not have to be coerced in the first place. Can I tell you what God wants? God does not want to lead you around on a leash. I know the devil told you that when you was thinking about getting saved. Maybe you're sitting here tonight thinking about getting saved and the devil's saying, I just, God of the Bible's wanting to put a leash on you. No, he's just upset because God's going to take his leash off of you. And that's why he's telling you that. But can I tell you, God's really not interested in leading you around in, in a leash. If he was, he'd give you fur and four legs. But he gave you free will instead. Why? Because he wants you to desire and to seek after him. And there's an interesting description give here. He says this, I will guide thee with mine eye. Now, what does he imply there? The picture is of a farmer that is driving a team of horses or of mules. And what is the means through which he communicates his will and desire to that team of mules? Well, there's a few ways you can do it. One of the ways is you can beat the mule or beat the horse and try to show your displeasure. Another way, and he'll describe this in a moment, is you can take a bit and bridle and put it on the horse or the mule so that you can drag it one way or another. One of the great, wonderful Appalachian uh, cultural things, some of y'all that uh, have moved here may not may not realize this, but one of the things is pretty common. People used to work, you know, teams of mules a lot around here. And uh, one of the things that they that they would do is they taught those mules how to respond to their verbal commands. And you might even hear me, I've sometimes used this terminology, but you might hear some country person around here and they'll talk about something not geeing and hawing. And that's that's mule driver terminology is what that is. Uh, geeing and hawing, those are verbal commands whereby they could tell a mule to go or to stop or to turn left or to turn right. So there is a sense in which through the voice of the master he can be directed. But there's an even more sensitive and intimate way in which that mule driver can drive that team He can teach those mules or those horses to respond to wherever he's looking. The guidance through the eye is the means of communicating the desire and the heart of the master. Can I tell you what God really wants? God does not want to drag you. God does not want to browbeat you. God does not want to whip you. What God really wants is for you to love him so much that you watch his face, look to his eye, and try to discern what he wants and get there before he ever has to ask. It's interesting. You say, preacher, how could I ever do that? How could I ever know God that deeply? You know, it's interesting. The eye, this is what we call anthropomorphism. Whenever God is attributed certain human characteristics, I understand that God was robed in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. But God the Father is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Certainly there is an image or a visage of God, but He's not flesh and bone like you and I are. And so when the Bible describes Him as having hands and eyes and legs and feet. That's in a literary sense what we call anthropomorphism. It's a literary tool whereby something is being communicated through that description. And did you know in the Bible when it talks about God's eyes, it's often associated with the Spirit of God. The Bible describes 
both in Isaiah and in the book of Revelation, the seven spirits of God as being the seven eyes of God. And it's not talking about God having seven holy spirits, but it's talking about God's character and God's value system and God's attributes. But those things are expressed just as there are multiple fruits of the Spirit, but it's really just the fruit of the Spirit that manifests in several ways. In the same respect, the Spirit of God, He expresses and manifests those seven attributes that are described in Isaiah and in the book of Revelation. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. When it talks about him leading us with his eye, it reminds me of how he leads us with his spirit. The spirit of God is who communicates the heart and desire of God to us. Can I say this? Part of obedience is seeking his heart, wanting what he wants for you. Until we want what he wants for us. And I understand we may not always know what that is. But until what we value above anything is what He wants, let's use a more familiar term, the will of God. Until we value that, we really don't have a heart of obedience. He describes Him as seeking His heart, but then as submitting to His hand. He says this, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. It means they have no discernment. They don't know what the right direction is to go. So what does he have to do with them? Whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Probably the most vivid example of this in Scripture, right, is Balaam's donkey. Balaam's donkey had understanding and had wisdom. But Balaam, instead of yielding to that, here's what he tried to do. He tried to run him into one side to the other. He tried to beat him. He tried to cuss at him. He tried to coerce him so that he could try to get that donkey to behave as he wanted. You know why Balaam did that? Because that's how donkeys are. Anybody that's worked with donkeys or mules or anything, that's how they are. They're stubborn creatures. They're willful creatures. They have a certain intelligence about them. But in regards to what is what is sensible and in regards to what is profitable, they have no understanding. And so they could only oftentimes be governed through the means of that. Here's what God says. He says, I don't want you to be that way. He, he doesn't want to have to have a heavy hand with us. He just wants us to submit to his hand in the first place. David has learned this, part of the Christian walk is being submitted to God and desiring His will. Notice a final thing and I'm done. Verse number 10, verse number 11. This is how he ends this psalm. This is interesting. He says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright, in heart. This is interesting to me because the thesis of verse number 10, I want you to hear me out. The thesis of verse number 10 is not always true. So there must be something deeper going on here. Think about it. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. That's not what we see in the world around us. Very often we see the wicked prospering. I mean, you can go and I don't think money's a sin. But you can go and look at the wealthiest men living in this world, and they're not righteous men. They're not moral men. They're immoral men. They're unrighteous men. Oftentimes, the wicked seem to be spared of sorrows. By the same token, he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about, be a shield about him. I don't know about you, but man, I've known a lot of people who had a lot more suffering and a lot more trouble and a lot more sorrow that, that knew the Lord and were righteous. I've known some like that than some of the most wicked men that I've known. The very first book that the Spirit of God pinned down is the book of Job. It's not a book about salvation. It's not a book about separation. It's not a book about second coming. It's not a book about God's dispensational plan for the ages. It's a book about suffering. The very first time the Spirit of God breathed into a man's pen, he said, talk about suffering. Job's life stands as a, as a stalwart example of the reality that yes, sometimes the righteous suffer. Now wait a minute, a perfect God wrote Psalms 32.10. A God that never lies. So what then must be the truth here? What is the essence of what he's speaking of? Well, here's what he's saying. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. There are some presently. There's a whole lot more coming in a future day. But more than that, notice the end of the verse. He that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. 
Here's what he's describing. Let me say it this way. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Verses 10 and 11, he's describing this forgiven man. He's describing his patience. He's describing how he's learned to deal with things in life that he does not understand. And here's what he's done. The first thing he speaks of is this man's perspective of suffering. I remember hearing a man say years ago, and this has always stuck with me, he said, don't ever begrudge a lost man the good times that he has. That's all that he's got. You understand that he's going to step off into a devil's hell and never have a moment of ease from any of his suffering ever again. And it doesn't mean we rejoice in it or relish in it. But it does mean we should not covet what they have and look and say, why is the road so much easier for them? They ain't walked their whole road yet. And here's what the psalmist has learned as he looks at wicked men that seem to be prospering. He's reminded that, in fact, they've got a lot more suffering than they do prosperity coming towards them. But now what about himself? David knew suffering. David knew heartache. He knew betrayal. He knew hostility and affliction and persecution. He knew what it was for his family to be destroyed. The Bible said that the sword would never depart from the house of David. It didn't during his lifetime or even following. His was a bloody lineage because of his own sins and his own mistakes. He knew what suffering was. He had buried children. He he had seen his kingdom uh, suffer and he had seen his people die. So what could he do? Well, here's what he could do. He could recognize this. He that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Now, there's two perspectives to this we can have. One is that mercy is a shield about him. Can I remind you, God has spared you of more than he has permitted in your life. We have no clue. If you just drive the streets of Knoxville, you ought to be dead a hundred times over. Is it ever, and I don't, I don't want to say this because you're going to get freaked out. You're not even going to know, you're not going to want to leave here when I tell you. But you understand that you drive up and down these roads all day and nothing separates you and certain death except for common sense and a double yellow line. Amen. How does that happen? Well, God's sparing us. God's protecting us. God's watching over us. But I think there's a deeper perspective here too. Here's what David's saying. He's saying, I understand and I have learned that anything that touches my life... He's already said earlier in the verse, God can keep the flood waters away when He wants to. So he's learned this, that anything that enters my life has come first through the searching hands of God's mercy. That the things that have come into my life have not come into my life because God is careless and cavalier. Not because He is thoughtless and laid down on the job. I love what David would say in the 23rd Psalm. Mercy and truth shall follow me all the days of my life. So I look back at my life and I see that every step of the way, God's mercy and God's truth have been there. God has never told a lie. He's never broken a promise. And He's never failed me one single moment. See, here's what he's learned. He's learned to change his perspective about the things that he experiences in life. You know, I don't mean to sound like some new age guru, but I'm going to tell you something. A lot of us need a change in perspective. We need to, uh, let me give you a good biblical concept there. We need to develop and cultivate a biblical worldview. We need to quit letting our worldview be defined by Hollywood and the news media and our own feelings and intuitions. And we need to begin to cultivate a biblical worldview. We need to begin to say, what does the Bible say about this matter? And part of spiritual maturity is having a holy perspective on your suffering. He speaks of his perspective of suffering. So what do I do, preacher? Well, you do what he says in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord, he says, and rejoice, ye righteous. And shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. You see the progression, right? Before I say a word about it, you see the progression. It began with his entrance. He talks about the blessing of forgiveness and of fellowship. He talks about his repentance. He's learned how to deal with sin in his life, his conviction over his sin, his confession of his sin. He's learned about dependence and trusting in the Lord in the midst of storms. He talks about the reliance of faith and the refuge that he found in God. He's learned the lesson of obedience, that it's not just about trying to keep the the, the basic precepts 
of God's law in some way and in some measure and in some means that he can consider himself to be upright. But it's about seeking God's heart and submitting to his hand. And then he learns the truth of patience. and How when things that happen in his life, he doesn't understand how to change his perspective in the midst of suffering. And here's what he learned. He learned, I might as well just go ahead and praise him in the midst of suffering. <laughs> it's hard. What I'm about to say is hard. It's hard for my flesh, hard for your flesh, but it's the truth. He has enough good credit built up in your life that even when you don't understand him, it would be prudent to go ahead and praise him because he's never turned out to be wrong and he's always been found to be faithful. So here's what David says. I don't have to always understand him to praise him. I don't always have to be able to draw a straight line between my problems and the solution. I don't always have to see a light at the end of the tunnel. God has proven himself faithful and that is enough for me. Go ahead and just praise Him on credit because He's got good credit. Go ahead and just praise Him anyway. Preacher, I don't feel like it. Well, you don't have to. Praise Him anyway. I'm not saying fake it. Listen, you can cry while you praise Him. I'm not saying be a hypocrite. You can admit that you're struggling. But go ahead and praise Him anyway. Go ahead and rejoice in Him anyway. Preacher, what if things don't get any better? Well, number one, they will. But number two, that ain't why we praise Him. We praise Him because He's worthy of it. We praise Him because He deserves. So David has described not just the moment of a man's salvation. I'm glad we're saved in a moment. I'm glad I haven't had to maintain a continuity of dependence upon God since the day I got born again because I sure enough would have lost my salvation if that were true. Boy, I've doubted Him thousands of times, probably millions of times, and that's just when I'm willing to admit that I've doubted Him. But I'm glad He saves us in a moment. But I'm glad... His salvation isn't but for a moment. I'm glad He's growing us and developing us. So here's what I'd ask you. Where are you at in that journey? And what's the next step? And would you be willing to take that next step with the Lord even this afternoon? Let's bow together. Musician's going to come and play. Miss Connie, come play for us. The altar's open. I challenge you to take that next step. Hey, you may have been saved by God's grace, but never learned how to deal with sin, and you got sin in your life even today. Won't you come down? Quit, go, quit, quit denying it. Go ahead and acknowledge it to God. Quit hiding it. Ask His forgiveness. He'll forgive you. He always has. He always will. Maybe your next step is dependence, learning how to trust Him, even when it's not easy to do so. Maybe you need to come and speak to Him about obedience, about how to bow the head and the heart, how to, how to kneel before him or maybe it's a matter of patience in your life and learning how to rejoice even in suffering father bless this invitation may it magnify the lord jesus we ask it in his name